Good morning. So before we get into the sermon this morning, I want to talk for just a second about why in the world we would do a series on hospitality. Uh, Last week, we started with the question, if you remember our text, it was in Isaiah 55, and we posed the question, are you satisfied? And what we were seeing was Isaiah had given us this picture of the Lord speaking to his people, inviting them to come to a feast, inviting them to come because they were spending their money and they were spending their desires on things that ultimately would not satisfy them. And so he says, all that thing is, all that is worthless, come to me, come and eat, come and and don't even worry about bringing money to the table, just come and feast and be satisfied. So last week we were trying to paint the picture of the good news of God inviting us to his table, to his feast, in order so that we might be satisfied in him. And the question that we asked was, are you satisfied? Now, what does that have to do with hospitality? Um, I want to refer you to a definition um, by Dr. Christine Pohl. Uh, She's done her PhD work in Uh, this area of hospitality, and her definition of hospitality is this. She says, for most of the history of the church, hospitality was understood to encompass physical, social, and spiritual dimensions of human existence and relationships. What it meant uh, was that the response to the physical needs of strangers included food, shelter, and protection. But even more so than that, it was also a recognition of their worth and common humanity. In almost every case, hospitality involved shared meals. Historically, Paul says, table fellowship was an important way of recognizing the equal value and dignity of people. And so what we're looking at today is the question about, again, this kind of central motif of being welcomed to a table. If last week was the grace of God in inviting us to ask the question, are we satisfied and have we set our expectations, have we set our affections too small, this week is a little bit different Because now we're looking at a text from the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church in Corinth that's asking the question, is it possible that the Lord may look on where we have said this is good enough and say, maybe not. Maybe it isn't good enough. So I'll invite you, if you would, to take your Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to pick up in verse 17 and read all the way through verse 34. Stand with me, if you would, and hear the public reading of God's word. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? 
What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers... When you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, and it is absolutely true. And so would the word of the gospel uh, both grab our hearts And show us all the ways in which we have been satisfied apart from you. And would you, by your grace, set before us once more the beautiful picture of Jesus and how he has sought us, saved us, and will one day resurrect us with a transformed world in the coming kingdom whose hope will have no end because faith has been transformed to sight. So bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So, fair warning, this is a pop culture reference. If you remember in that great trilogy of movies, in the third one, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Indy is in the, uh, Indy is in the temple where allegedly the chalice of the Lord, the, the cup that the Lord himself would have used at the, uh, at the Last Supper was present there in this temple. Now, Indy was, uh, was trying to retrieve this archaeological um, piece of wonder, but there was also someone else that had more nefarious uh, intentions that was also there with him and runs in and there before him is, is a table spread wide with all sorts of goblets and chalices and everything else, some very humble and some very, uh, very ornate. And the caretaker of this, of this temple is sitting there and, say, and says to the one that got ahead of Indy, he says, you must choose, but choose carefully. And he goes and he looks and he, and he thinks, aha, I've got it. And he dips it in water because he thinks that this is going to somehow magically give him some sort of supernatural power, perhaps uh, eternal life or something else. He dips it in the water and he drinks the cup. And, and feeling, he says, the power rush in him, all of a sudden he begins to age and age quickly and age quickly. And then he, 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 he turns to dust and disintegrates. 
now Indy is left with a choice. And, and as you remember in seeing the movie, he goes and he takes a very humble uh, chalice, a very humble goblet, dips it in the water, and before he has a chance to, uh, to do anything with it, um, he realizes that uh, some bad things are about to happen because they're running out of the temple and all of a sudden uh, things start crumbling around him. He, of course, uses the, uh, the water from this goblet to, to pour on a wound that his father had received and to ultimately save his dad's life. Now, I say all of that because I think for many of us, when we approach the topic of this text, and this text is one of the central texts outside of the Gospels that gives us the clearest account of Jesus' words about the institution of the Lord's Supper. Now, when we look at this text, there's one passage in here that gives us great problem, and it's right here at uh, verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now, if you are like me, and maybe you're not, but if you are, that scene from Indiana Jones gives a really close picture about how you envisioned what happened when you would go to the table. Have I repented enough? Have I said the sinner's prayer enough? Have I done all the right things? Because I absolutely don't want to be guilty of having not examined myself properly. And so we come before this table with a great sense of fear and foreboding, thinking that this is actually what's going to happen. Well, I want to tell you something today, and that is, um, I don't believe that that's at all what this text teaches. In fact, what I believe is that Paul was addressing a very specific problem due to a very specific issue in the churches in Corinth, but those issues have massive implications for who we are as the church and what it means for us to live and exist in the community of faith as the body of Christ. If you think about Jesus' ministry, you might ask yourself, who is Jesus? What did he come to do? I think there are three ways that you can describe Jesus' ministry. And the first one is that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Secondly, Jesus came to announce that the kingdom of God was at hand and that we should repent and believe. Here's the third thing that Jesus did. The third thing that Jesus did was that Jesus ate and drank among sinners and tax collectors. The first two things that I gave you in that synopsis of Jesus' ministry was the what of Jesus' ministry. And the third thing in that string was the how of Jesus' ministry. How did Jesus come and declare all the things that he did? Is he ate and drank among sinners and tax collectors? And this wasn't a lecture, this was a place of welcome. In fact, if you look at the Gospel of Luke, almost every single teaching opportunity that Jesus had there in the Gospel of Luke was over a shared meal. In fact, as I was doing research for this sermon series, one of the books that I came across was a book entitled Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel, where it was looking at all of the major teaching instances and how all of them align themselves with a meal. Now, there's one other thing that I need to say in terms of uh, kind of setting up this passage for us, and that is how we envision that this meal that the Corinthian church was getting ready to gather to take. Many of us imagine that we're sitting in a room not unlike this, where there's a, uh, a pulpit where people are uh, expounding a text of scripture, and we're sitting in pews or chairs, and then there's a communion table down front. This would not be at all what, have been, what would have been happening um, in the Corinthian church. These were, me- in many cases, house church scenarios. So with that in mind, let's think for just a minute about um, how 
divisions happen in the church. In uh, chapter 11, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I commend you, and it's because he's given them instructions on how to carry themselves during worship. And in so doing, he said, I commend you because you've heard my words and you're following these things and everything else. We get here into 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 17, but in the following instructions, Paul says, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. So what is he saying? He's saying that I may have commended you before because you were doing some okay things before, but in this matter, the bad clearly outweighs the good. What's happening in the church right now is not good at all. For in the first place, for in the first place when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. And what Paul's not talking about here is he's not talking about divisions in terms of saved and not saved like he did earlier in the, in the letter. What I believe that Paul is talking about here is not a category of saved and not saved, but a category of class distinctions. How do we know that? He says in verse 19, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you might be recognized. That part I give you. When you come together to eat, it's not the Lord's supper you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. So What is Paul saying here? What Paul's saying here is that in their meals, the Corinthians favored the privileged and the rich. If the Lord's Supper was observed in Corinthian homes, which we believe it would have been, the rich and powerful may have been allowed to eat first. Since one remained hungry while another got drunk, they obviously ate and drank to excess. Now, this would have been bad enough, but they marginalized Um, people and magnified the harm that they were inflicting by leaving nothing for the others. Now, such social practices were so common that it would have seemed natural for the church to do the same. So what's happening? Imagine in this home, you have a, uh, you have a room, uh, a specific room where uh, rich folks would go and they would be served very, uh, they'd be served very lavish food. They'd be served um, delicious uh, uh, meats and wines and everything else. And then in the rest of the home, when the church was gathered, you would have uh, the, the, the rest of the people, you'd have poor people, you'd have other people that couldn't afford to bring great and rich and fancy food to this occasion. So imagine uh, if we as a church were to go have a picnic one day and some of us were to bring out uh, fine linen cloths to put on the ground and picnic baskets with, uh, um, with cut crystal goblets in there to pour our wine and had uh, delicious imported caviar and cheeses and meats and everything else. And then you've got folks over here on the side who all they could afford because in, uh, at that point the money would have run out, they could bring crusts of sandwiches in. And even then so, not have enough to be, to be full with a meal, they just had enough to at least show up with something. And this is what was happening in the church in Corinth. And so what was happening is the rich were using their position and lording it over the poor. And this runs contrary to the gospel, by the way. The gospel demanded a radical departure from societal and social custom. This is why the New Testament warns against giving special honor to the wealthy. The problem was not that they had wealth. The problem is that they let wealth define how they, how they 
related to the rest of the society and how they related to other people and allowed them instead not to uh, serve people, but rather marginalize people. And this is where Paul says, this is, this is not the Lord's Supper that you're observing. This is something else. Because when they got together as the church, we see in the book of Acts that when the church had gathered together, it wouldn't be like what we had today where there was a wafer and some juice and whatever. There would be a, a grand and glorious feast in the, in, the, in the house. People would get together and they would celebrate and they would feast together. And then at some point along the lines in that feast, they would then give bread as Jesus did. They would give cup as Jesus Jesus did. These were known as the agape love feasts, and they were a central part of the worshiping life of the church. And this is why what's happening in Corinth is so offensive to Paul. The church's communion meal reveals its divisions. Indeed, division seems to have been the goal for some of the people there. These banquets were occasions for the conspicuous display of social distance and even for humiliation of the clients of the rich by means of the quality and quantity of food provided to different tables. What's the source of this? The source of this is because at the end of the day, the treasure of the heart was that status and wealth was more important than other people. Now, how does this relate to our overarching topic of hospitality? I think it's in this. Many of you, when you hear the word hospitality, you immediately think of entertainment. I'm entertaining people in my home. Perhaps you went and saw a special on Food Network. You might think Martha Stewart, or you might think uh, the Pioneer Woman, or something else in terms of how these great meals are to be put on, where everything is just so. What I want to say is that in this, uh, in this realm of biblical hospitality, that couldn't be uh, anywhere near what the Bible has uh, in mind. Secondly, you might actually think that hospitality is the entertainment industry. It's, it's food and beverage. It's, it's restaurants where you go. It's professionals that are in charge of making your evening or your meal or your stay memorable. And that's not it either. If you remember from the definition that I read to you earlier, it was a response to the physical needs of strangers for food, shelter, and protection, but also a recognition of their worth and common humanity. And what was happening here at the church in Corinth was anything but a recognition of people's worth and common humanity. In fact, what was happening here instead was people who were intent on getting whatever they wanted at the expense of everyone else. I think there are two ways that divisions can happen in the church when people start getting selfish about their needs. There are two ways that divisions can happen when people start getting selfish about their needs. And first of all, the first category is people that are exhausted. They're so exhausted that they, uh, all, they have blinders on in the sense that 
They just need what God is going to give them. They, they, they're very hungry. They come very needy, and they come rushing to the place where they want to make sure that their communion with the Lord is special and significant. Their time in the Word is filling and satisfactory because they're tired, and they're exhausted, and they need what God alone can give to them. So the first category of people is someone that is so desperate for what God alone can provide that they're just pushing everyone else out of the way to get to where they can get filled. There's the second category of people that we have to be aware of. The second category of people is not a people who are just so desperate for God that they can't see anyone else. The second category of people is a people that do see that everyone else has need. They do see that people need to be served. They just don't care. This is what we see here. We see a people who are getting filled up at the expense of others, satisfied at the expense of others, and then saying, look, we're doing church. Isn't it wonderful? And Paul says, I do not commend you in this. When you gather together, this is not the Lord's Supper that you are practicing. The problem comes when we're so satisfied in our own experiences that we presume everyone else must be having the same experience we are. A church that has blinders on to itself and to others is a dangerous and toxic place. Because a church that has blinders on to itself and others has functionally said, as long as I get what I need, nothing else matters. So, if that's how divisions happen, where it's this me-first heart, where it's I need mine at the expense of everything and everyone else, how then does unity happen? And this is where we see Paul bringing in his apostolic authority, his understand, his, what he has received from Jesus. And he goes into what are very, very familiar words, if you've ever been a part of a church that's practiced the Lord's Supper, and someone has told the congregation why we're practicing the Lord's Supper, because it's something that Jesus himself instituted. And many times, we'll quote right here from 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when they had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Now, you might be thinking that this is the first time that Paul has talked about communion in this letter, but it's not. If you've got a Bible and you can look back one chapter with me over to 1 Corinthians 10 in verses 16 and 17, listen to what Paul writes. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? 
Paul said in verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So what's Paul saying here? Well, let me um, step away from this just a minute and, and give you kind of what I believe and what I believe uh, the church has historically taught is what's happening here at the Lord's table. Now, while some have quibbled over time over um, the presence of Christ in this meal, let me say this really clearly. I believe that when we take this bread and drink this cup, we are actually mysteriously, by the power of the Spirit, through faith, feeding on the Lord Jesus Christ. What this is not is an empty meal. What this is not is mere memorial. What this is not is simply a time where I have to get into the right headspace and say, okay, I believe Jesus died for my sins. Okay, I believe that his blood was shed. Boy, those are really awful things. Lord, help me feel how awful those things were and how bad my sin is and how grateful I am for you. Those are all good things to do, by the way, but that's not the point of the meal. The point of the meal is that when you are receiving bread and cup by faith, you are participating as Paul said here, in Jesus' life himself. By faith, there is union with Christ wherein God's people and the, the risen, ascended Lord Jesus are actually uh, united in a way that is unlike any other part of the Christian life. So where the quibbles have come over the years is that the elements themselves, nothing happens to the bread, nothing happens to the cup to make it become the body and blood of Jesus, nor is Jesus above, around, beneath um, the, the, the elements as, as some have understood him to be because Jesus is ascended is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty in heaven. What's happening instead is that we, by his spirit, who is here among us, are participating in the body and blood of Jesus in a profound and special way. So what that means for us practically in terms of how unity happens is that when we partake of this meal, we are all together at one time sharing in the resurrected life and body and blood of Jesus Christ himself. So what that means is that it's impossible then for there to be a sense of superiority or a sense of I'm only after it for what I'm going to get out of it because that's not the way a body works. A body works together. A body nourishes itself together. A body is all unified and connected together. What we're reminded of here in the Lord's Supper when Jesus said this is my body, which is for you. We're reminded that Jesus is um, giving us a tangible, visible picture of the gospel. It is my life exchanged for yours. It is my body exchanged for yours. It is my righteousness exchanged for your unrighteousness. It is I who take on your death and you who receive my life. That is what Jesus is saying in this meal. And every time we come, we declare this to one another. We proclaim the mystery of the faith that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And it is most particularly felt and experienced here at the table. So what do I mean by that? Um, one of the books that I was uh, using as part of my preparation for this series was a book by a guy named Tim Chester. He's an author over in the UK. He wrote a book entitled A Meal with Jesus. And here is one of the quotes. I'm going to quote from him several times over the course of the sermon. Here's one of the quotes from him in this 
book. He says, participation in the communion meal is habit-forming. The Lord's Supper is a drama in which we're active participants. Each time we participate, we're learning and relearning our role. We're learning the habits of cross-centered living. Now, I need everyone to not to tune out for me on this quote. Another scholar by the name of Peter Lightheart says this. He describes the supper as the church's role play. Though the Eucharist does not bypass the mind and conscious reflection, the effect it has is more in the realm of acquiring a skill than in the realm of learning a new set of facts. The effect is more of a matter of training than teaching. At the supper, we eat bread and drink wine together with thanksgiving, not merely to show the way things really ought to be, but to practice in the way things really ought to be. Not automatically, but in the context of biblical teaching and a robust community life, the skills and virtues practiced at the Lord's table will spill over to fill the whole church with a Eucharistic ethos. In short, the supper exercises the church in the protocols of life in the presence of God. Taking this meal together, taking any meal together, but especially this meal is training us, equipping us for skills for the kingdom that is to come. Life in the presence of God with the people of God. Paul says in verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Richard Pratt says that the expression proclaim occurs many times in the New Testament to describe the ministry of the church to the unbelieving world. It is the prophetic announcement to those outside the church that Christ is the only way of salvation. When the church, when the world sees the church eating and drinking in order to remember the significance of Christ's body and blood, the word of the gospel is made visible. The expression, the Lord's death, represents the whole of Christ's saving ministry on behalf of the church, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Tim Chester says, the communion meal reorients life. The communion meal reorients life. Pause. Think about this for just a second. If you stopped going to a church, if if you went to a church that didn't celebrate communion, what practical, tangible, real difference would that make in your life? Just think about just, just think about that. Tim Chester says the communion meal reorients life by relocating us in the story told by the word Jesus. Instead of being defined by the stories of our culture, we live as participants in God's story. And the meal points to the goal, eating in the presence of God as a celebration of his generosity in creation and salvation. 
We anticipate this in every meal, but especially in the Lord's Supper. Now that's challenging for a society that treats food as fuel, where meals are eaten in haste rather than leisure, where many times we're just fueling up to get to our next task. When the idea of sitting down together and and, and actually sitting across the table from one another, enjoying one another's presence, laughing with one another, hearing stories from one another, when this seems like a special occasion rather than the norm of our life, is it sufficient to say that we have perhaps missed what it looks like to live as a Christian community? that we've exchanged solitude for isolation, that we've, exper- that, we've, that we've exchanged feasting and celebration with survival. Now, every time we come together and feast at any time, but especially at the time when we come and share the meal of the Lord together before his, uh, before his, uh, before his church and, and among his people, It reorients us to a different story. So that actually brings us to this third thing, which is uh, where this passage really can go off the rails for people, and that is um, how we then examine ourselves, how we then do the diagnostic work to see uh, if we're actually coming and and partaking of the Lord's Supper in a right manner. Um, Verse 27 says this, Whenever therefore, uh, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So what does that refer to? Context clues gives us a, gives us a clue. Verses um, 29. For anyone who drink, eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment onto himself. So really at this point, Something's happening. To participate in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner has traditionally been interpreted broadly to mean participate while having unconfessed sin. This may be due in part to a misinterpretation that understands unworthy as describing the sinner rather than the word unworthy describing the manner in which you are partaking. Are you with me? When we, when we substitute in the word sinner as being the unworthy one instead of the manner in which the, uh, the supper is being partaken, um, we can then say that uh, an unworthy manner is unconfessed sin or it's in the realm of not having enough theological knowledge to be able to articulate what's happening at the table. Um, and, and to be sure, uh, I'm not saying that it's not valuable for believers to confess their sin and to appropriately prepare for worship by doing so. But Paul's focus in this passage was much narrower. The unworthiness that he had in mind was participating in the Lord's Supper in a way that failed to exhibit the unity of the church of Christ. That this was his meaning can be uh, clearly seen in his exhortation in verses 33 and 34. Look at what he says. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. That's not a theological category. That's a practical category. Wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home 
so that when you come together, it will be not for judgment. To prevent unworthy eating and subsequent judgment, he did not advise the Corinthians to confess their sin or even to recognize Christ's presence in the elements, but to wait for one another. And if, they, if they're going to need to gorge out on some food, do it at home where they have a stocked refrigerator. To sin against the body and blood of Jesus then in this context is to violate the primary reason that Jesus came to die, which was to reconcile his people to God and his people to one another through his shed blood. And furthermore, to sin against the fellow members of this body of Jesus by not regarding them as more important than yourself. I've got to put my mask on before I help anyone else. Verses 28 and 29, uh, Richard Pratt again says, this verse does not say that the Lord's Supper should be observed introspectively with participants focusing mainly on their own hearts. Rather, Paul offered this instruction as a corrective for a specific problem. In general, the Lord's Supper should be a time of celebration in which Christians focus on Christ's honor, the church's unity, and the proclamation of the gospel. The focus should be on others, not on ourselves. It's only in preparation for the Lord's Supper that individuals must turn their attention inward. That's actually why we really like the idea of everybody getting up out of their seat and coming down and taking the elements together and looking another human being in the eye and recognizing the truth of the gospel that Jesus has given everything for you so that you might have in turn everything in him. That's why it's a time of joyful remembrance. It's not a time of solemnness. It's a time of celebration where the church declares the good news, the mystery of the faith, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. He's not some sort of abstract, absent deity through which we have no connection at all, but through his spirit, we have union and unity in Christ because we are participating in his very body and in his very blood. So... The other thing is that Paul didn't chide the people who were needy, the poor, for coming to the Lord's Supper. He didn't chide them for coming hungry. They couldn't avoid it. Those of means who were hungry were to eat at home so there'd be enough food for the poor. The feast was a time when the gospel could be demonstrated not only in the elements of bread and wine, but also in the loving treatment of the poor. Paul's saying in part that this table is a microcosm for the Christian life. It repatterns us, it reshapes us because it is learned action, not learned facts. Another quote from Emile with Jesus, he says, in a busy culture, with people desperate to succeed. We practice in communion, resting on the finished work of Christ. In a fragmented culture that is radically individualistic, we practice in communion, belonging to one another. In a 
dissatisfied culture of constant striving, we practice in communion receiving this world with joy as a gift from God. In a narcissistic culture of self-fulfillment, we practice in communion joyous self-denial and service. In a proud culture of self-promotion, we practice in communion humility and generosity. All these practices are habit-forming and so seep into the rest of our lives. Metrocrest. How are you? How are we doing with discerning the body? Because remember, this was not a feast practiced in an auditorium. This was lives shared together in one another's homes. Are those in the margins of our community, those in greatest need, welcome at our tables? Do we actually seek them out and make room for them? Or are we content that our tables are filled with the same old people, the usual suspects, or not filled at all? Would Christ look at us and say, I commend you in the ways in which the body and blood of the Lord are participated in together? The ways in which meals are shared together This is the fundamental question before we can move on. Because before we can talk about ways that, that we would desire to change or ways that we would desire to see the pattern of Jesus' life patterned into our own lives as well from a heart's desire standpoint, not from a, a standpoint of I have one more thing to do or I have one more item to add to my schedule, but rather because I have been changed from the inside out and have been given new desire. The question is, have we as a people not taken note of the vulnerable the weak, the lonely, the marginalized around us and gone ahead with our own meal because either one, we're desperate and we need to get our mask on first or two, we're oblivious and just don't care. Do we know who's poor in spirit? Do we know who's on the margins? Do we know who needs welcome? If we don't, what are we going to do? The first thing then is not to go and say, well, got to find my old directory and start printing out and figure out who I got to have over my house. 
first thing would be to say to the Lord against you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. Because I am a selfish person. I want my space. I want my time. I want my resources. I don't want to share. I don't want to give it up because I feel overwhelmed. I am the one that goes before the Lord and says, against you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. Tim Chester, once more, and then I'll be done. He says, when the disparate people of God come together and express community around the table, united as we are in Christ, then the promised feast finds fulfillment. When we celebrate the goodness of creation as we enjoy our food, then the promised feast finds fulfillment. And we anticipate the renewal of creation. When we eat together in the presence of God by his spirit, then the promised feast finds fulfillment. These are powerful declarations to the world of the coming feast of God to which all of humanity is invited and the current presence of God with his people. This table, friends, this meal is the heart of worship because it represents the heart of God. Come, all of you. Why do you spend your money for that which does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and delight yourself. Because God said, I will give you abundantly. That's the, that's the promise, that's the hope, that's the feast in which we have been called to ultimately in Jesus and the feast in which we rehearse now as we open our tables and open our homes and bring in the marginalized and the outsider and the one who's alone and the ones who, who's acutely in need, not just to show them a meal, but to actually care for them and give them humanity and dignity. The title of the series is participating in the generosity of God. None of this is possible unless God first made it possible. We can't participate in any generosity unless we first have been recipients of generosity. We can't show love unless we have first been shown love. God is not asking you to do anything that he's already supplied you to do. And if your supply is low... Come to him and bring others with you because this feast is the only place where satisfaction is found. 